So we're in the third week of a new sermon series on Paul's letter to the Ephesians. If you've been with us these past two weeks, you remember that the first week we looked pretty specifically at the author of this letter. Who was Paul? Why did he write this letter? Why was he uniquely chosen to carry the gospel to the Gentiles? Last week, we explored Paul's view of the gospel, which was that God was bringing the Gentiles into a story that he began writing when he approached Abraham and told them that he, him that he was going to be the father of many nations. This third week, we're going to be looking at something that I'm, I'm personally excited about. Many of you know that one of my favorite topics is the connection between faith and reason. I like talking about doubt and evidence and wrestling with faith and why in the world in this scientific age anyone would believe a 2,000-year-old story about a dying and rising God. If you have ever had questions like that, I think that Paul's message today will be interesting for you. We're reading just four verses. They're all from the first chapter of Ephesians, verses 15 through 19. I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, and for this reason I do not cease to give thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation as you come to know him, so that with the eyes of your heart enlightened, you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power for us who believe according to the working of his great power. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Give us grace to receive your truth in faith and love and strength to follow on the path that you've set before us through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So this short reading is essentially a prayer. Paul is saying to the Ephesians, I want you to know that I pray for you, which is, of course, a nice thing to say. I mean, many of us have heard people say this, I'll pray for you. I'm sure we've said it ourselves. I'll say a prayer for you. I'll keep you in my prayers. But we don't normally know exactly what that prayer is or if it actually happened. It's not often that we get to understand the contents of people's prayers, but that's what Paul wants these Ephesians to know. He says, when I pray for you, this is what I ask God for. I pray to God that he would open the eyes of your hearts. And I have to stop and comment on the fact that that is a wonderful image, isn't it? That God would open the eyes of our hearts. I want to ask you to do something. If you would, could you place a hand over your heart? Pretend for a moment that you're in kindergarten and you're saying the Pledge of Allegiance. Keep your hand right there on your heart. Through the ages, poets have said that the heart is the very seat of the soul, which means you are connected right now to the deepest part of who you are. Can you sense that? That this is the deepest, wisest part of you, and that perhaps this part of you, this depth, this wisdom, this part of you, this heart, knows things that your brain doesn't know. You can put your hand down now. 
or you can leave them there. I mean, I wanted to mention, I had a, a mentor once that would always tell people that whenever they feel anxious, they should put a hand on their heart. Because he said that's a way of immediately connecting to the deepest part of yourself. What would happen if Paul's prayer was answered and if the eyes of our hearts were opened? What do you think that would be like if, if we lived on a daily basis primarily through our hearts? Do you think anything would change. Paul clearly thinks that it would. Listen to clo closely to what he says. With the eyes of your hearts opened, you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance, and the greatness of his power for us who believe. So he says that when you see the world through your heart, you actually know more than when you see the world with your brain. That's counterintuitive, isn't it? I'm going to come back to this idea in just a moment. First, I want to look briefly at these three things that Paul says are going to happen to you if you open the eyes of your heart. He says if you do that, if you live through your heart, you're going to know three things. You're going to know hope, you're going to know the riches of God's inheritance, and you're going to know the greatness of his power. Now, let's just set a little historical context here. I need to point out why it was so important for the Ephesians to know these three things. The answer is that they were putting a lot on the line in joining Paul's church. And they had to know that they were going to be getting something out of it because, you see, to become a Christian was dangerous for both Jews and Gentiles. We've talked a little bit about how Paul oppressed the early church. He was persecuting other Jewish Christians. Well, Gentiles faced possibly a more dangerous foe, which was the Roman authorities. There was enormous social pressure for Gentiles to worship the pagan gods. Part of this was merely a matter of economics. There's this wonderful scene in the book of Acts that actually takes place in Ephesus in which there are these men who sell uh, silver idols of the goddess Artemis outside the temple of Artemis, which was located in Ephesus. And of course, their livelihood is selling all of these idols to pagans who are coming to worship these gods. Well, they're not happy with Paul because he's getting people to convert to Christianity, which means they're going to stop buying their idols. It affected people economically, but there were a lot of other reasons. People thought that if you stopped worshiping the Roman gods, you lost the protection of the Roman gods. And then who knows what will happen to you. And so, you know, when Jews stopped worshiping or started to worship Christ, the Romans really didn't notice because they didn't pay that much attention to the Jews. But when Gentiles stopped going to pagan temples and stopped buying pagan idols and stopped worshiping pagan gods and stopped worshiping Caesar as Lord, that got their attention. And here's the reason why I mention this. Paul is saying to these Gentiles that these fruits I'm offering you, that Christ is offering you, that I'm telling you about, they are worth risking your life for. So let's talk briefly about these fruits, hope, inheritance, and power. The first thing is hope. And that simply means that your life has meaning. God calls you into a future with hope, which is an echo of that wonderful passage from Jeremiah, for surely I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for your good and not for harm, to bring you into a future with hope. And that's a message that so many people in our own day are longing to hear, that they are not accidental cogs in an accidental godless universe, but that a personal God has called them into being and has a plan for them. If you knew that God had called you into being 
and was involved in your life in a personal way and has a plan for you, well, of course, that would give you a a profound sense of hope. That's the first fruit that comes from believing in Christ. The second fruit, Paul says, are the riches of his glorious inheritance. Here, Paul is referring to the fact that we are heirs. He uses this word a lot in his letters. We are heirs of Christ. Well, an heir is somebody who inherits something in a will. Paul is saying, you are inheriting riches that you didn't earn. You have, you have life, true life, not from anything you've done, but because God left you something in his will. It's a gift. And that is a direct challenge to the pagan religions, which taught people that the gods were very fickle and they have to be constantly appeased. Pagan religion was very transactional. You needed to honor the Roman gods in just the right way, saying just the right things and making just the right sacrifices. If you did so, you would get health and prosperity, and if you didn't, they would turn against you. Paul is saying to these people who were just recently pagan, that's not real. The real God is a God of grace who gives you this inheritance as a free gift. That was radical. The third fruit is the greatness of his power for those who believe. And Paul means power quite literally. It's the power that makes you come alive. It's the power that heals you. It's a mercy that humbles you. Now, I wanted to briefly go over these three things because they are still true today. If you believe in your own life, you will be granted these fruits of hope, grace, and power. I have seen this happen thousands of times. I've never seen it fail that if you truly put your life in the hands of Christ, you get these fruits. But there's something else going on here that is even more important for us to understand. And it's counterintuitive, and so I want to spend a few minutes on it. And I want to ask you to listen closely now because what Paul suggests goes against everything that most of us assume. What Paul says is that if you want to see these fruits, if you want hope, if you want inheritance, if you want power, you can't use the eyes in your head. You can only look through the eyes of your heart. Now here's why that's counterintuitive, because he's what, say, he, what he's saying is that first you believe, and then you see. And of course that goes right against what most people believe. Most people say seeing is believing. I will not trust anything unless you first explain it to me in a very detailed and scientific way. If you want me to trust God, I'm open to it, but you have to first give me scientific evidence that he is real, and then maybe if you convince me intellectually, maybe then I'll open my heart to this reality. But here's what Paul says. He says, I pray that with the eyes of your heart opened, then you will know faith and hope and the inheritance of God that is experienced by those of us who first believed. So he's reversing the order. He's saying that in order to understand these things with your mind, you first have to believe them with your heart. I'll give you a little more evidence in case you're still wondering whether this this could possibly be true. The word that he uses, which is translated to know, is a Greek word that specifically describes rational knowledge, head knowledge. And that means Paul does want these Christians to have a rational understanding of their faith. Of course they need that. They need to be able to tell people why they've become Christians. I mean, they have friends and family members who are begging of them, you have to come to the temple with us. You're putting your lives at risk. 
The gods are going to attack us if we stop worshiping them. They have to know rationally how to defend their faith in this world. But what Paul says is that in order to get that rational faith, the first step is a heart step. Believing leads to seeing. I wonder if that makes sense to anybody. Paul is not saying, let me be clear, Paul is not saying that you shouldn't use your mind. I mean, he himself was a brilliant philosopher. N.T. Wright has often said that Paul's letters are right up there with the writings of Plato and Aristotle in terms of his understanding of rational philosophy. He had one of the most subtle minds of the ancient world. But Paul also understood something so radical about the Christian faith that because God is a person, he has to be related to on a personal level. And if you want to know a person, you have to take the risk to, to trust them with your heart. Let me just speak personally. Today, of course, is Father's Day. I am incredibly lucky to be a father. And the reason I can be a father is because I'm first a husband to my wife, Rebecca. So I want to tell you a little bit about how I know Rebecca, and I mean this in the way Paul did. How do I rationally understand my wife? First, a caveat, I don't completely understand her. Of course, people are all mysterious and complicated, and I think I can speak for all men when I say that women are especially confusing. But to the extent that I know her rationally, it's because I first trust her with my heart. Here's what I mean. When we first met, we were both living in New York. We were friends. We had mutual friends in common, and we spent a couple of years knowing each other platonically, which I refer to as the evidence-gathering phase of our relationship, <laughs> right? What is this person like? Is she nice? Is she smart? Do I like her family? Does she like my family? Can I envision my future with this person? We were using the eyes of our heads, you know, rational knowledge. But there comes a point in a relationship in which if you want to go deeper with a person, you have to make a leap of the heart. You have to make a commitment, even though, and this is really important, you don't know rationally if it's going to work out. You can't know rationally if it's going to work out. It is a risk. Many relationships don't make it. But there's a reason you take that leap of faith. It's because if you don't open your heart to them, you can't really know them. That's the counterintuitive wisdom of a relationship. You can't deeply know another person unless you first give your heart to them. But when you do, new kinds of information become available to your rational mind. After you trust, there are things that you learn about them that you could never have known if you did not take that leap of faith. Does that make sense? Now, you could say, well, I am a skeptic. I'm not going to trust another person unless I'm certain that it's going to work out. Well, you're going to be waiting a long time. You have to take a risk. Now, you should take an educated risk. I wouldn't advise that you walk out into the street and go up to the first person you see and say, will you marry me? It's an educated risk, but there comes a point in which you have to take that leap of faith. The great philosopher Augustine said something very similar. He, like Paul, was among the greatest of the ancient philosophers. He was capable of enormous rational thought, and yet he came to a realization that he put this way. Credo ut intelligum, that's the Latin version of this, and it means I believe in order to understand. I believe with my heart so that I might finally understand with my head. 
I believe with my heart because it's the only way my mind can have access to the truth about God. That's what Paul is saying to the Ephesians. I pray that you may know with your head the things that come to those of us who trust with our hearts. Now, some people might say that's blind faith. I would say it's not because Paul gives the Ephesians plenty of evidence for the reliability of the resurrection. When Paul was working with this church, there were hundreds of eyewitnesses to the resurrection that were still alive. I mean, this was within 20 years of Jesus' death. Paul talks about these people in his letters. He gives the Ephesians lots of rational information about why the resurrection really happened in history. But then he says, even if I convince you that it's all true, that knowledge does nothing for you unless you take a leap of trust with your heart because God is a person, and you don't get to know a person by reading a textbook. You get to know a person by trusting them. You want to love somebody? Then love them. That's how you learn about love, by loving them. I'm going to end this sermon with a prayer, and I, if you're comfortable with it, I would ask you once more to place your hand over your heart while I pray. God, we pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that you would transform our minds, that we might be convinced of your reality, and then that you would empower us to take the leap of faith so that by trusting you with our very souls, we might gain the fruits that Paul describes, the love, the mercy, the hope, the grace, and the power that can only come from a relationship with you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.